0: Hi friends, good morning. Well, it's morning for me, whatever time of the day it is for you. You're very welcome as you join us together on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is for us together to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Thus, transforming our lives by the study of the Bible each and every day. Whether you're here for the very first time, or you've been here for the entire journey, you're very welcome. And I do hope that you click on that subscribe button so that you never miss the chance to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. Please do hang on at the end because I've important information about ways that you can connect to my ministry and find lots of other free Bible study and Bible teaching resources. But with that said, bye for now. Okay friends, we'll be looking at today the opening of a new chapter where Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? And I've called today's message The High Ideal and we'll be covering Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 to 9. So I'll jump straight in as I do always and read the entire section of scripture for you and then we'll go through it and work our way through it together and see what conclusions we can reach and how it might be applied. That sounds good. So here we go. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, made them male and female. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put it away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. So here we see Jesus dealing with what is in his day, as in our own today, a very vexed, heated burning question. Divorce was something about there was little or no agreement among the Jews at the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees here, what they're deliberately trying to do is not only trap Jesus by what they say, but they also are trying to involve him in this controversy that was raging at the time. At this point in world history, up to this point, no nation had ever had a higher view of marriage than the Old Testament Jews. Marriage was reckoned to be sacred and to remain unmarried after the age of 20, except in order to concentrate on the study of the Torah, that was seen as a breaking of the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. The Tanakh actually taught, he who has no children lessened the image of God upon earth, and also said, when husband and wife are worthy, the glory of God is within them. The Jews' law of marriage was based on the Old Testament scripture, Malachi 2.16, where God was seen to declare, I hate divorce. But this highest ideal and the actual reality of what was going on on the ground in the first century at the time of Jesus, by that time, those two things weren't going hand in hand. In this time, in the first century at the time of Jesus, they had developed two dangerous and damaging elements in interpretation of the Old Testament view of marriage. First, you have to understand that in the eyes of the Jewish law, a woman at that time was seen as just a thing. She was a possession first of her father and then of her husband. And technically, she had no legal rights of her own at all. Most Jewish marriages were arranged by the parents or by what were called professional matchmakers. A girl might be engaged to be married in childhood and was very often engaged to a man who she had never seen. There was one caveat which said that when she came to the age of 12 she had one chance to repudiate her father's choice but this was almost unheard of because of the influence over the parent of a young child up to that very early age and was only ever recorded as being enacted in the most rare and extreme of cases. On the other side, in the matters of divorce the law, as it was interpreted, said the initiative for a divorce must always always lie with the husband. The pharisaic law at that time said a woman may be divorced with or without her consent but a man can only be divorced with his consent. You see the woman could never initiate the process of divorce. She could not divorce. In fact you could say she had to be divorced. By and large the law was that the woman had no legal rights and the right to divorce lay entirely with the husband. The second thing was that this process of divorce by this time had become incredibly easy. The process was founded on the interpretation of a passage in Deuteronomy to which the Pharisees here questioning Jesus here are actually quoting and referring to and that's Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 which says When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand, he can send her out of his house. This bill of divorce as described here was a simple one-sentence statement by which the husband dismissed his wife. Roman historian Josephus, writing on this, on how he witnessed the Jewish marriage and divorce being enacted at that time, said this, He that desires to be divorced from his wife for any cause whatsoever, and many causes do happen among these men, as I see, let him in writing give assurance that he will never use her as his wife any more, for by this means she may be at liberty to marry another husband. So the one safeguard against the dangerous ease of which the divorce process could be manipulated was the fact that unless the woman had committed what was described as a notorious sin, Her darling must be returned and she would have the right to remarry again. But one of the great problems of Jewish divorce lay within the mosaic enactment of the very principle of the divorce. If you remember, this enactment that I quoted from you from Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, said a man may divorce his wife and it actually says, if she finds no favour in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Now this issue became all focused in on how the phrase some indecency and how people chose to interpret that. And on this point, the Jewish rabbis of Jesus today were fiercely divided down two main schools of thought. And it was this controversy that Jesus' interrogators are wishing to try and pull him into now. One school of thought was headed by a rabbi called Shemaiah. And he taught very clearly that this matter of indecency, quotation marks, meant fornication and fornication alone, and that for no other cause could a wife be divorced by a man. A woman could be seen to be troublesome or difficult, but as long as she did not commit adultery, there were no grounds for divorce. On the other hand, there was a school of Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, and he interpreted the matter of the man see some indecency in the widest possible way imaginable. He said that it meant a man could divorce his wife if she spoilt his dinner or if she went out with her hair unbound or just spoke to another man in the street or even spoke disrespectfully of his parents in her presence. Also, she could be divorced if the man found her loud or considered her to be an angry woman, described as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Any of those things, and others, allowed divorce to be permitted. There was even one extreme rabbi, even by the standards of that day, a man called Rabbi Akaba, and he went to the length of saying that if he finds no favour in his eyes, meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman that he found more attractive and liked better and considered more beautiful. But the main school of thoughts were Shammai and Hillel and the catastrophe for the first century Jewish woman that it was the conservative school of Hillel whose teaching prevailed at this time. And the marriage covenant was being seen very lightly and divorce on the most trivial grounds was very common. To complete the picture further, and it is relevant to note that under a rabbinic law, divorce was actually compulsory for two reasons. Divorce was compulsory for adultery, and if it turned out that the woman was unable to have children, well, of course, it was always assumed to be the woman in those days. The object of marriage was the procreation of children. So after 10 years, a couple were still childless. Divorce was not only allowed, it was in fact compulsory interestingly I think insanity was not grounds for divorce if the wife became insane the husband could not divorce her for if he divorced her she would have no protector in her helpfulness and would not be able to be uh, remarried in that sense no one would want her and if the husband became insane divorce was impossible. also but in that case it was only because he was incapable of writing a bill of divorcement and without such a bill being initiated by him there could be no divorce. So, when Jesus is asked what appears on the surface a straightforward question, that is in the background of what is going on in this situation and all these complications and trouble and division that's going on at that time. However, Jesus, well, his answer, well, it was amazing as you would expect. And he answered it in such a way that it came to an absolutely staggering revelation, surprise, outrage to all the parties involved in this dispute. Because he suggests a radical change of direction to this whole situation and to those that seek to be followers of him. And I think it's important to note that this teaching and this principle in marriage applies to those of us who seek or claim to be followers of him. So let's see what Jesus himself teaches on the issue of marriage and divorce. You see, in effect, the Pharisees were asking Jesus whether he favoured the strict view of Shanae or the laxer view of Hillel, and thereby seeking to pull him into this controversy. Jesus' answer was to take things back to the very beginning, back to the high ideal, the beginnings of all things, the ideal of creation and the Garden of Eden. And he says, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, man and woman. Now, he points out that in the circumstance of the creation story, Adam and Eve were created for each other and for no one else. Their union was by nature of the fact that it was the first union between the first man and the first woman was absolutely complete and unbreakable. Jesus said here, Adam and Eve are the pattern of all who were to come later. In other words each married couple thereafter is by God's ideal is meant to be a replication of the Adam and Eve marriage and their union of course is permanent and our marriage union are designed to be no less permanent. The argument that Jesus makes is actually very clear and logical. In the case of Adam and Eve it was of course completely impossible For the simple reason there was no one else for either of them to marry that they could be divorced. Therefore Jesus was laying down the principle that divorce is wrong in the sense that it doesn't reach God's high ideal standard. Now here at once the Pharisees, they see a point of attack. So again, they turn back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Let me remind you what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand, he can send her out of his house. What appeared to be, for the Pharisees, the very chance they want to come in and say to Jesus, how could you say that? If you're saying that, you're saying Moses is wrong because he wrote this in Deuteronomy. Are you seeking to abolish the divine law which was given to Moses? Are you setting yourself above Moses as a lawgiver? Jesus' answer was the fact what Moses said was not in fact a law, but it was nothing more than a concession, which is a very different thing. Moses did not command the allowing of divorce for these certain reasons. He only permitted it. At best, it was only permitted, and it was offered as a concession in order to regulate the reality of a situation which, if was left unregulated, would have become more and more manipulative in terms of married relationships and probably more and more promiscuous as well. Jesus says the Mosaic injunction was a concession to fallen human nature. But in the Genesis story, we have the ideal set, that which God intended. The ideal being that two people who marry should become so inseparably one that they are one flesh. So Jesus' answer was this. Yes, true, Moses permitted divorce, but that was a concession in view of the lost ideal the high idea of marriage is the thing that is to be always aimed for and we see in the unbreakable perfect union of adam and eve the model that is meant to be the model for marriage christian marriage specifically so let's now just take a moment to look and see how this ideal married relationship works this one which jesus sets before anyone who is willing to accept his commands as the standard And of course, it is rooted in the Jewish idea of what is called kaddush. That's what the Jewish term marriage, the word that has been used here, said. And kadushin meant sanctification or consecration. It was used to describe something that was dedicated to God as his exclusive and particular possession. Anything surrendered to God was kaddush. This meant That the view of marriage that Christ is talking about here says that the husband is consecrated to the wife and the wife is consecrated to husband. They set themselves apart for each other totally and in a way that they become the mutually exclusive possession of the other. Wow, what a high ideal that is. That's what Jesus meant when he said that for the sake of the marriage, a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and that they become so totally one that they should be called one flesh. That was God's idea of marriage, and it's as old as the Genesis story itself that we see in Genesis chapter 2, and that is the ideal which Jesus restates here. He says, that's what to aim for, and there are benefits and consequences of that. So clearly, that idea does have benefits and consequences, and I'd like to close by looking at what those might be. Well, the first of those is unity. This totally unified view of marriage means that marriage is not given as something that is just meant to be for a phase in life, but it is meant to be for all of life. So it's not meant to be motivated by just one part or one passion is life. So that even means to say that while sex is, of course, an extremely important part of a marriage, it is not the main thing. Any marriage entered simply because of some fervent, physical desire or intense sexual attraction, if established on that alone, is doomed to failure. Marriage is given not that two people should do and be one thing together, but that they should do and be all things together. Another way to put this is to say that marriage is the total union of two personalities. The idea is that marriage states that two people will find their completion of their individual personalities And real happiness comes when the two halves find a way together and marry, unite, join in a covenant relationship which does in fact complete them and enable them to express a new completed personality together. Marriage should not narrow our lives, it should complete it. For both partners it should bring a new fullness, a new direction, a new contentment in life because it is the union of two personalities who willingly surrender themselves to the other in ways which they complement and complete each other. Now that does not mean that adjustments and even sacrifices be have to be made by one or both parties but it does mean that the final relationship can be fuller, more joyous, more satisfying than any life of singleness that could be for these two individual people who have chosen to go into marriage in this way. One of the other benefits of this is the ability, of course, to share the hard times, to share the difficulties. You can put this very simply and practically by saying that marriage should also be the sharing of all the circumstances of life. There are dangers that in the early days of infatuations two people see each other only at their best. They will see each other only when they're on their best behavior, perhaps dating, usually spending time together doing pleasurable things. But in marriage, two people will see each other when they're not at their best, every day, all day. They'll see each other when they're tired, when they're weary, when they're anger. And if God blesses them with a family and children come along, then with the upsets that only children can bring. They will see each other and how they react and how they support each other when money is tight and when bills become a problem. Or perhaps when having a family, being to walk the floor at night with a crying baby and tired during the day. And unless those two people are prepared to face the change and adaptation of life that marriage brings, then that marriage can be at risk of being a failure. That leads to the very practical conclusion in my mind that the basis of marriage is not that it should be for any one of these things, that marriage should be the basis of a togetherness. A togetherness that lies in nothing less than the consideration of one another and putting the other and the marriage relationship first. If the marriage is to succeed, then partners must always be thinking more of each other than of themselves. Selfishness is a destroyer of everything any personal relationship, married or otherwise. But that is truest of all, and most important of all, when two people make the decision to be bound together in Christian marriage. The true basis of marriage as Jesus presents it here in his response to these Pharisees, it's not complicated, it's straightforward, it's simply that the love that you're meant to have with marriage is the one that thinks more of the happiness of the other person than it does of itself the love that is happy to serve the other person which is always able to try and understand the person and most importantly of all is always willing to forgive the other person and that is to simply say that the love experienced in the marriage should be a Christ-like love a love which knows that in forgetting ourselves and forgiving others and putting others first and dying to ourselves we actually find completeness in ourselves and in the other person, and in God himself. What an amazing passage of teaching that is. What an amazing high ideal and standard it sets for us and gives us something to aim at in our own lives, our Christian lives, and in every way we live it. And I'm thankful for it because for 2,000 years, so many millions and millions of people around the world have benefited from establishing marriage on that basis. Okay people, that's it for today. I do hope you'll find it helpful. My name is Jeremy McCandless and this podcast is hosted on thebibleproject.buzzsprout.com. That's where you'll find links and ways in which you can connect to this ministry and access lots of other free Bible teaching resources and discipleship courses. Can I ask you that if you are finding this helpful and enjoying being part of this journey together through the entire Bible, then please why not consider sharing a link to it On those social media places or anywhere else where you exist on this wonderful thing called the internet. There is also a way that you can connect and support this ministry if you like. This podcast is hosted at Buzzsprite, which means that it is hosted in a place where there is no random ad revenue generated. Occasionally adverts will appear, but they're only adverts that I have selected because they're other Christian organisations or they absolutely share the values of the Bible Project daily podcast. Every week I turn down 10 to 15 offers of advertising revenue in order that this podcast isn't seen to be representing organisations or people who don't share the values and principles of this ministry. Also by hosting and buzzedout.com it means that it's a place where your browsing history will not be tracked. Now, the downside of that fact for me is it means that the numbers of streaming level does not actually in and of itself generate any additional income to help meet with the cost of this podcast. Now, if you're accessing your podcast on Spotify or or Apple Podcasts and many of these other larger platforms, that's great and you will hear adverts. But that's because the business model that they're using to provide you with the amazing services that they can do does include advertising revenue, which includes tracking your browsing history. And that's absolutely fine if you're comfortable with that. because you're making the choice to have those services and enjoy them and that the surrender of a certain level of privacy that you're willing to offer in exchange for that. But in terms of where this podcast is hosted, even though it's then replicated throughout all the other platforms so people can access it everywhere, There is no attempt to try and monetize this family of people who are together working through the Bible. Instead, I rely on the occasional small percentage of people who make a donation via Patreon or through becoming a supporter via the Buzzsprout website. So if you do really appreciate what we're doing and want to share in the values of it, then there is an opportunity to support us in that way. But it's absolutely fine if you're just here For the Bible itself, it's always going to be here as long as I'm able and around. It will be free, freely available in the public domain, copyright free also for you to share and use and utilise in whatever way you want for your own personal study or for the preparation of teaching of others. So that's the ethos. That's the purpose. That's what I'm about here. And I do hope you're finding it helpful. And I do hope I will see you back here tomorrow. And I do hope you subscribe and you make a decision to make the study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life also. And if you've done that, that's brilliant. And I will see you back here again then soon on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.